The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Of America's more than 600 secret societies, Freemasonry is the grandfather. And as each of these secret societies has had many purposes and took many shapes, labor unions, business groups, rural, agrarian organizations, religious and occult organizations, white supremacists and hate groups, political groups, sobriety and drinking groups, immigrants, anti-immigrant organizations, most all with the appeal of oddball occurments, such as costumes, banners, voting equipment, hoods, emblem jewelry, and outlandish hats. And taking in the wide breadth of them all shall provide a snapshot of America. The Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks is an American fraternal order founded in 1868, initially as a social club in New York City. The Elks began in 1868 as a social club for minstrel show performers called the Jolly Corks. It was established as a private club to elude New York City laws governing the opening hours of public taverns, as the Elks borrowed rites and practices from Freemasonry. To begin with, there are two things here that catch my attention. One, that the Elks began as what appears to be a drinking club. Secondly, how the Elks took a heavy-handed approach towards stylizing their fraternity from the rites of the Freemasons. Also, the Elks appear, well at one point, to more closely have aligned itself with that old white supremacist club, the Order of the Elks, or BPOE, Best People on Earth, was originally an all-white organization that refused to allow people of color the use of its club, Elks Dining, or Lodge use, and all other leisure facilities until ordered by the court in 1973 to open up its membership ranks to all races and genders. The all-white, all-male society, whose individual members had long used a white glass marble to vote for the acceptance of a new member, or a black lead cube to reject by court order, had essentially lost its ability to live up to its credo, that no person shall be accepted as a member of this order unless he is a white male citizen of the United States of America, of sound mind and body, of good character, not under the age of 21 years, and a believer in God. Article 7, Constitution of the Benevolent Protective Order of the Elk, repealed 1973. The group had also been rather political, as in addition to being a white male American citizen, one must not have been a member of the Communist Party. Post-1973, the current requirements for membership included belief in God, American citizenship, willingness to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, willingness to salute the flag of the United States of America, willingness to support the laws and constitution of the United States of America, being of good character, and being at least 21 years of age, members nowadays primarily join the Elks to be provided with entertainment, liquor, and food at reasonable rates in social quarters. Yet the members of each lodge are encouraged by the grand exalted ruler to participate in National Elks charity programs and to respond to community needs and events, as it is common to turn that BPOE abbreviation into the backronym for Best People on Earth. 
But what of these more mysterious rites, traditions, and regalia inherited from the Freemasons? First, it must be mentioned that it is claimed that, by the first decade of the 20th century, much of this had been abandoned as the Elks sought to establish their own identity. Claiming that the original two degrees required for membership were consolidated into one degree in 1890, the apron discontinued in 1895, the secret password by 1899, and the badges and secret handshake were abandoned in 1904. However, it is said that the initiation and funeral rites still exist. While the initiation rite is no longer considered a secret, the initiation involves an altar with a Bible upon it and a chaplain leading the brethren in, in prayers and psalms. The candidate must accept a solemn and binding obligation to never reveal any of the confidential matters of the order, while further promising to uphold the Constitution of the United States, protect Brother Elks and their families, only support worthy candidates for admission, and never bring political or secretarian questions up into the order. The funeral rite, called the Lodge of Sorrow, also involves prayers. Deceased and otherwise absent lodge members are recalled each evening at 11 p.m. The bell will be rung 11 times, and the lodge esquire intones. It is the hour of recollection. The exalted ruler or a member designated by him gives the 11 o'clock toast. You have heard the tolling of 11 strokes. This is to impress upon you that with us, the hour of eleven has a tender significance. Wherever elks may roam, whatever their lot in life may be, when this hour falls upon the dial of night, the great heart of elkdom swells and throbs. It is the golden hour of recollection, the homecoming of those who wander, the mystic roll call of those who will come no more. Living or dead, elks are never forgotten, never forsaken. Morning and noon may pass them by, the light of day sink heedless in the west. But ere the shadows of midnight shall fall, the chimes of memory will be pealing forth the friendly message to our absent members. But what of this solemn and binding obligation to never reveal any of the confidential matters of the order and this sworn oath to protect Brother Elks and their families? What might these confidential matters be? And to what degree are Brother Elks and their families protected? What other activity lingers in question to the relation of Freemasonry, and are they connected? One might be inclined to state, while both are fraternal organizations that have social aspect and provide charitably to the community, no, they are completely separate organizations. The other might oblige that distinctly American animal, the elk, does in fact have deeper ties to that other organization, also founded on the principles of brotherly love, relief, and truth, and initially open only to white men, though hailing from the depths of European history. And while one might state that Freemasonry is a secret society that focuses on spiritual and moral values, the Elks is a public organization that focuses on charity and community service, as mentioned. However, the other might re-mention the reality of the Old Boys Club. 
that both societies are interlinked through a shared purpose that allows the members of both organizations form a network of support and a bond of friendship that transcends any other group connection, be it that casual relationship with societal law and order, which is further understood to constitute social institutions such as the, the polity, family, property, even the individual. In other words, membership in such secret or public organizations guarantees a lifelong supply, a vowed purpose to provide each member with a network of support that shall transcend any other group connection, be it the law of the land. Through membership, one is guaranteed a degree of locale immunity. Nationally, quite better. Globally, ideal. Yet I ask again, to what degree? Embezzlement? Arson? Murder? As the rumor mill, fueled by a combination of small-town mentality and headlines shouting of double homicide, turned in full force, one of many theories as to the cause of the death of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine was that the tragic event all led back to one particular motive, embezzlement. Hushed whispers spoke that Donna, part-time bartender and waitress at the local Elks Lodge, who also worked full-time as a secretary to the trust officer at the National Bank of Canton, may have just stumbled upon a financial crime. Whispers that the president of the bank was himself a high-ranking Freemason, that the mounted head of the Elk, perched high on the wall of the lodge, where the bankers enjoyed weekly cocktails about a game of cards, himself heard whispers and harbored secrets behind his own shiny black marbled eyes. Whispers that a societal coalition between members of the Masons and those of the Elks had lived up to their obligations to never reveal the confidential and sworn oath to protect fellow brother Elks by resorting to any means necessary to rebury those crimes potentially uncovered by the secretary to the trust officer who so desperately desired employment elsewhere. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I am still presenting the facts, it would be premature to delve into theory, let alone that of conspiratorial nature. However, I am quite eager to provide context, a hint or two now and then, to present in real time whisperings as they occurred, and to world build, and offer character profiles, particularly when approaching such factual happenings, and the underlying truth of such, of which together we seek. As investigators sought as much information as possible from co-workers of Donna's at the National Bank of Canton, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms special agents Kenneth Kedzer and Gary Smith also pursued interviews with Donna's fellow workers from the Elks Lodge. The inquiry began with a meeting with Iona Price at her residence, as Iona was not only a co-worker, but a close confidant of Donna's. Despite the tight bond Iona had formed with Donna, Iona stated that she had only known Donna a relatively short time since Donna had begun working at the Elks only a few months back. She added that Donna was hired to tin bar on the weekends, but that it was short-lived as Donna's bosses at the bank, themselves brothers, members, and regulars of the Elks private bar and ballroom, objected to Donna bartending on Sunday nights, as it might reflect poorly on her character, and thus the institution, whom the community so willingly trusts, particularly the trust department, with their life savings. 
When asked, Iona said that the last time she seen Donna was on Sunday night, January 10th, 1993, when the two had worked the Kmart Christmas party held at the lodge that evening. Donna seemed depressed that night, she said, explaining that Donna had recently gone to Connecticut to visit her family. But she didn't have a good time, said Iona. Her dad made her feel really bad. How so, asked the agents. He was running her down, and he thought Donna should have a better job and a good man, she said. Special Agent Smith then asked about Donna's ongoing divorce, and Iona stated that Donna had never talked highly of her husband John. John was always running her down, she said, and he didn't want to pay any child support, and Donna really needed more help. She was doing real bad financially, Iona added. Investigator Smith inquired about any boyfriends Donna may have had, and Iona stated that she didn't think Donna dated that much. Although she saw Terry Haynes for a while, and Donna told me a while back that John had caught her with Terry at her apartment, and I know she was talking to another guy who was really nice. Was Donna dating this guy? No, I don't think so. They were just friends, she said. Donna wanted to take things slow. She didn't want to get hurt again. Do you know the name of this guy Donna was friends with? I think his name was Tom, said Iona. Was Donna a drinker? She would have a beer every once in a while, but no, she wasn't a heavy drinker. But we would share a few beers sometimes after our shift before heading home, said Iona. And what would Donna usually drink? She used to drink Miller Lite, but then she switched to Canadian Mist and Diet Coke. Did Donna smoke? Yes. Investigator Smith then asked if Donna was having any personal problems. Iona said she was trying to sort out her life. She went to a religious camp to help with her problems, and I thought things were getting better for Donna. And we, we, me, Donna, and another good friend, Linda Pig, were planning a birthday party for Donna. Silence briefly filled the air as everyone realized the unfortunate weight of such a statement. Adjusting a chicken pox a while back, said Iona. A couple days later, investigators spoke with good friend and Elk's co-worker, Linda Pig, in the kitchen of her home in the nearby village of Cuba, Illinois. Linda stated she was bartending at the Elks on the evening of January 12th, the last night she had seen Donna alive. When asked, she also stated that she knew Donna smoked, but never at the bank or when bank officials were having drinks at the Elks bar. Sometimes Max Scott and other employees from the bank would come in and play cards for an hour or two, she said. And when did you originally meet Donna? When Donna was hired on in the fall of 92, not too long ago, she said. And when did you last work with Miss Tonkin? The weekend before the fire, she said. And you mentioned that you had seen her on the evening of the 12th, the night before the fire? Yes, Donna would usually stop in at the Elks after she got off at the bank, and we would visit for a bit. Linda said that Donna had arrived that night at around 5.15pm, as usual, but seemed somewhat in a hurry. Linda stated she said she had something to do and she only had one beer. What time exactly do you recall Donna leaving the Elks? I'd say around 5.28 because she had to pick up Justine at the YWCA. Linda said that she worked all evening, but that Donna never returned. What brand of beer did Donna drink before leaving? Just a can of Miller Lite, said Linda. Clarence Brecker or me, one of us told her that it was on us and offered to buy her another one. But Donna was in a hurry, so she just asked for a pack of Salem Lights. But she usually smoked Marlboro Lights, but we were out at the time. And what was Donna's mood like that evening? She seemed in a good mood to me. She was excited about the birthday party we had planned for her. It was to be held on the 22nd. Tomorrow night, actually. Linda stated that Donna had been wearing a pastel flowered skirt and blouse combination, but that she was unsure what coat Donna had been wearing, adding that sometimes she wore a gray cloth or tweed jacket, and she usually carried a black leather purse, she said. How close would you say you and Donna were? We hit it off pretty good, but I'd say Donna and Iona were probably closer. Miss Pig, are you aware of anyone Donna had been dating leading up to her death? She had dated Terry Haynes for a time, but they had broken up a while back. But they were still good friends. And I think Donna had been seeing a guy named Rod or Rob, but I don't know his last name. 
and I know a lot of the guys at the bank were pursuing her. I remember on more than one occasion she'd talk about the weirdos and spooks at the bank. Do you recall any specific names? I'm sorry, I don't. Tell us more about Donna's role at the Elks. She'd wait tables, bus, and wash dishes. A little of everything, said Linda. She had been tending bar on Sunday afternoons for three or four weeks, but she stopped because someone at the bank spoke up. They said they thought it might interfere with their work, but hell, bingo is over by five on Sundays, the bar is closed, and everyone is out by seven. Yeah, sometimes after our shift we'd have a beer or two, but we'd never get drunk. That's not allowed. The investigators inquired further about Terry Haynes, and Linda said, Donna had shown me a letter Terry had written her, trying to get her to date him again. But Linda then elaborated on John, stating, and Donna talked about her relationship with John all the time. She was really scared of him. She told me John had one of the worst tempers she'd ever seen, and that she refused to live like that. And I know when she went to Connecticut over Christmas, she planned on staying for two weeks, but John called and made her come back early. Something about taxes and the divorce. It's too bad, really, because I know she was looking forward to spending time with her family, and especially her father. What else had Donna told you about the ongoing divorce from John? Well, she'd always complain to me about how he wasn't paying child support. And I know she was stashing money away in a separate account in case of an emergency. Did John know about this separate account? No, I don't think many people knew, just me, maybe Terry. Donna told me it was a secret not to tell anybody. Miss Pig, have you ever been to Donna's apartment outside of work? No, but I know that she bought a sofa from someone up the Wright's furniture. The agents made eyes and jotted it in their notebooks, asking, Do you know this person's name? I don't, said Linda. Can you tell us what beer Donna usually drank? Miller Lite and sometimes a mixed drink, but only on certain occasions. Donna wasn't much of a drinker, really. But when we worked parties, we'd usually finish up about 1 in the morning and we'd have everyone out and lock up by 1.30. And depending on how long it took the band to pack up, we'd have a drink or two. Donna was an early riser. She'd even give me a wake-up call between 6.30 and 7 every morning. And she'd usually spend the evenings at home with Justine. But from time to time, she'd stop by with Justine after picking her up from daycare. And she'd have a drink or two. And tell us again, had she returned with Justine on the evening of the 12th? No, she didn't. Not that night. And when did you hear about the fire at Miss Tompkins' apartment? The next day when I was up at Heights Finance. That's when I heard about it. The interview concluded and the officers gave Linda a business card and asked her to call if she remembered any additional information. And a few days later, Linda called up to inform the investigators that, in fact... She had never seen Donna drink whiskey, only Miller Lite, and when asked, she responded that the Elks Club only used fifth bottles behind the bar. And no, we do not sell Canadian Mist. There are no packaged sales at the Elks. At about 10.10 a.m. on January 23rd, Canton Police Detective Marty Brown received a call at the station from a woman who identified herself as Teresa Sale. Teresa told Sergeant Brown that she saw the article about Donna's death in the paper, and that since she is friends with Detective Brown, she wanted him to pass along what she felt would be important information to the investigation. Teresa was a part-time bartender at the Canton Elks Lodge, and she told Sergeant Brown that on Saturday, January 9th, at around 2 in the afternoon, she had a conversation with Donna Tompkins at the Elks. Donna was concerned about the amount of attorney's fees in her divorce case. Donna had told Teresa that John kept coming over to her house late at night or early in the morning before she went to work. Teresa told the detective that Donna said John was harassing her about the divorce, and that Donna had also complained to her attorney about John, who then replied on behalf of Donna in a letter to John each time this occurred. Donna had told Teresa that each time her attorney wrote John a letter, the attorney would charge a fee, and that she was very afraid that John would get even angrier over this. 
Teresa said that Donna was concerned, specifically because John had beaten her before, and Donna was terrified it would happen again. Detective Brown informed Teresa that Sergeant Ayers, the lead detective on the case, would soon be in touch, and Teresa said that she was eager to be able to provide more help. On the 26th, Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer and ATF Special Agent Gary Smith conducted an interview at the Canton Police Department with Miss Cheryl Bourbon. Cheryl told the agents that she knew Donna through the Elks Lodge. She stated that she and Donna became pretty good friends in the last six to eight months. She added that she would see Donna in the evenings when Donna would stop by for a drink. Donna was open, honest, and loving, she said, and she was a good mother to Justine, to the point where you could say Justine was even maybe a bit spoiled, and if Justine was sick, she always stayed at home with her. Justine always came first. Cheryl stated that on Sunday the 17th, she had heard someone at the Elk say that a man named Huggins, who lived upstairs from Donna, said that David Haynes from the National Bank had a key to Donna's apartment. I heard that Dave would let himself in and out any time he wanted, and then he also would babysit for Justine, she said. She then added that she had also heard that Donna's husband, John, was supposedly harassing her and was always fighting with her over Justine. I heard that they started having problems before Justine was born, she said, adding, I'd heard that Donna was the cause of the problems, but I know John became abusive, and that is why she left him. After the interview, the agents decided to head back to the Elks. There, they spoke with Sherry Ault. Sherry stated that she was the manager that scheduled Donna to work the Kmart Christmas party on Sunday the 10th but she does not know precisely when she showed up or got off because the Elks does not maintain a time clock. Donna was paid $31.50 for working the party that night, she said. Her base pay was $4.25 an hour. The agents asked if it was reasonable to assume that Donna worked until midnight, and Sherry said that since Donna was paid for approximately 7.5 hours of work, she would have had to have worked until midnight. Yes, I suppose that is correct, she said. And who else was working that night? Iona Price? When did you hire Miss Tompkins? Last August, she was looking for a part-time job, but I am not sure why. She didn't seem to need the money. She was originally hired at Tin Bar on Sundays, but I was told Donna was not allowed to bartend. I guess her boss at the bank, Max Scott, told her it was not allowed, but I didn't see the big deal. Donna was always finished with work by 7.30 on Sundays. Investigator Smith then asked about Donna's relationship with Terry Haynes, who was an Elk's brother and who managed the bar. And Sherry said that in November, Terry started bad-mouthing Donna. I'm not sure why, but he was really mad at her. I also know that Terry's wife was upset with Donna too. She was pissed off that Donna and Terry had been dating. Terry was also jealous of Rod Franciscovich because Donna had left him for Rod. All I know is Terry is a real problem. He's been stealing. Stealing from who? The Elks. And how much money would you say Mr. Haynes has stolen? I'd say well into the hundreds of dollars. The agents took meticulous notes as Sherry kept talking. I know Donna was involved with Max Scott and David Haynes from the bank, said Sherry. That evening, Terry Haynes arrived for a follow-up interview with the Canton Police Department. Terry had agreed to meet with the investigators at his own leisure and convenience. Present was Terry's childhood buddy, Sergeant David Ayers, and Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer. At first, Terry went over a lot of the same information as he had during his previous interview, reiterating that he and Donna would only go on dates out of town to avoid John, though adding that they occasionally met up on Donna's lunch breaks at her apartment to have sex. 
saying that the relationship fizzled out after two and a half months after an argument one night between the two. We were supposed to go on a date that next night, but she went out with Rod instead, said Terry, and the two had been dating since. Yeah, we were still friends, he said, adding that one week before the fire, he'd even given her a Christmas gift, something Terry had mentioned before, though this time his story changed a bit, as he this time noted the last time he had seen Donna before the fire was at the Elks, just a few days before her death. Agent Kedzer asked if Donna had ever dated David Haynes, and Terry said, Donna told me that Dave made an advancement on her, but Donna turned him down. And what else can you tell us about David? Well, I can tell you that he is a real spook. He never gave Donna a break, adding, Donna was trying real hard to move up at the bank. She wanted to be an officer, but Dave was holding her back. Are you aware if David had keys to Donna's apartment? I know he is the one that gave Donna a set of keys when she moved in. And tell us again, when did you last speak with Donna before the fire? Oh, I tried to give her a call before she went to Connecticut for Christmas, but her machine came on. Did the machine sound normal to you? Yeah, I'd say so. It sounded normal to me. In addition to the polygraph exam, Sergeant Ayers asked if he would be willing to provide fingerprints and a blood sample. And Terry said, sure, I'll do all I can to help out. Anything you need or want, just let me know. As the interview ended, just 20 minutes later, Terry signed a consent to search form to provide a blood sample. And after fingerprinting Terry, Sergeant Ayers, just following protocol, he mentioned, accompanied Terry to Graham Hospital Emergency Room. Julie Erton, PBT, collected a blood sample from Terry and transferred the blood back to Lead Detective Ayers, who offered Terry a warm, reassuring shake of the hand in the chill January air, before Brother Terry parted upon his separate way, yet never forsaken. Morning and noon may pass him by, the light of day sink heedlessly in the west. But ere the shadows of midnight shall fall, the chimes of memory will be peeling forth the friendly message. B-P-O-E. Best people on earth. I am Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.